This is the Right Now Podcast with Sarah Werner. Hello, friends. I am back again this week. I have with me another amazing guest, and I wanted to say who I cannot wait to introduce you to, but that ends a sentence in a preposition, and I think I should have used whom, so we're just going to go right ahead and introduce you. Today, I have my good friend, Jamie Ridenauer, who is the creator of Palimpsest. That is how I know him, but Jamie also has this really long and established career in writing, and so I have a nice bio I'm going to just read real quick. So Jamie is the writer and producer of, again, the popular audio drama Palimpsest, as well as the author of the werewolf murder mystery Barking Mad, published in 2011, and the writer and director of the award-winning short horror films Corner Boys and The House of the Yaga. His ghost play Grave Lullaby was a finalist for the Kennedy Center's David Cohen Playwriting Award in 2012, and Jamie's short fiction and poetry have appeared in Strange Horizons, Andromeda Spaceways Magazine, The Newer York, Across the Margins, Mirror Dance, and Architrave, among others, and has been podcast on Pseudopod, Cast of Wonders, and Radio Unbound. And he has a brand new play, Bloodbath, Victoria's Secret, which is premiering in 2021. Jamie has a PhD in Victorian Gothic fiction, which is my jam. And in addition to publishing scholarly articles on Dickens, Le Fanu, and contemporary vampire films, he edited the Valancourt edition of Sheridan Le Fanu, I hope I'm saying that right, it's Camilla, 2009, and wrote a book-length study of urban Gothic fiction called In Darkest London, published in 2014. He has taught writing and literature for over 20 years and is currently at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina. Oh my gosh. Wow. Welcome to the show, Jamie. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. What a list of accomplishments. Well, it's just, you know, I'm old. And so it, eventually they just, when you list them, they rack up. They just, they just build up. Well, <laughs> you have to up. do them. You have to yeah. do them. So, you have so to do you've them. done yeah. them. You've accomplished yeah. them. They're beautiful. Now you get to list them. And you also, I hear, are writing a novel as well. I am about to start a novel. I finally am reaching a place where I'm going to be able to clear some space. And the past few years, I've either been writing play or writing palimpsest at any given moment. And I guess I can thank the pandemic for this because the play that's opening in October was supposed to open last October and it got COVIDed into next year. And so I'll be directing it and, but I don't have, like, I'm not, I was writing it last year and this year I don't, like, I'm not, don't have anything scheduled. I'm not under deadline or commission for something. So I've actually got space once we finish this season of Palimpsest to begin or continue a novel. (laughs) I love it. You are a man of many, many projects. And this is something we were chatting about a little bit earlier through email is all of these different genres you work in. You do stage plays, you do podcasts, you're starting a novel, you've done short fiction. Tell us, I guess, why? But I, I don't want that to sound judgy. No, it doesn't sound judgy okay. at all. It, it, it um Because there is a sort of jack of all trades, master of none feel to it. I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One is that I get bored. Mm. And I like the variation. Yeah. So, and the other is that I, you know, it's all story to me. It's all narrative and it's all ways to approach the themes that I work with and the things that I want to say. And there's different 
the right word is different muscles mm. that come into play depending on genre. And so it's fun sometimes to figure out if I have an idea for a story is, you know, would this be better as a stage play or would this be better as a, as a piece of fiction or, you know, how is it going to be best expressed or experienced? And it just keeps things interesting for me. I like it. I love that. I am very much the same way. I know it almost feels a little entitled to say, well, I just get bored with some things, but I do. And it's true. And yeah, yeah, I have so many questions. So you're a professor, but you also do a lot of genre work. And I remember very vividly in my own education, a little bit of maybe an incompatibility between what people would consider high literature and then, you know, writing about like the fun stuff that you and I love to write. So I'm like a science fiction junkie and you are just this master of horror. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, is there still a tension there? Do you get, do you get any feedback there or? There's not as much tension as, as there used to be. I I mean, particularly in, I mean, my PhD is in the, in the 19th century Gothic. So by the time I was doing my PhD, which is 2001 or so, I started working on the PhD. I don't know. Gothic is sort of like a word you can use to slide in under the radar. (laughs) (laughs) So it's fine to do at that point, it was fine to do academic work on Dracula or Jekyll and Hyde or Dorian Gray or, or Bleak House or, you know, the things that I worked on in my dissertation in my, my book on London. I love all of those. I do too. I love them very much. And for me, there is a direct line of descendancy between that and, you know, hereditary or, or get out or the, the, the great horror resurgence we're having right now. And I feel like that, I don't know. I've just finagled it well. You know, I, you go in doing Gothic and then slowly over the course of my career, I began doing well. You know, I've worked on Carmela, which is the great lesbian vampire novel from the 19th century, my favorite vampire tale. I did an edition of that. So it made sense then to write about the Swedish film Let the Right One In, which is in some ways a retelling of Carmela. Mm. And that'll, that allowed me to be, you know, quote, academic. But really, I just wanted to write about vampire films. And so... So you get away with it, you know. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Yeah. Wow. So you didn't did you didn't really get it. You don't get anyone like turning their nose up at you or anything that you create. And nobody like, that ma- nobody that matters. Thank you for saying that. You know? I mean I mean yes, there is some academic snobbery out there in the same way that there is cultural snobbery towards horror or, or any genre fiction. And it's actually I didn't ask about the language requirements on your on your oh. podcast. It's bullshit, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so it, it's, uh, you know, it's insecurity masquerading as gatekeeping. And, and I don't, mm. I'm not, I don't have any interest in gatekeeping. But having said that, I have encountered very little of it. I mean, mm. I've been, I've had very supportive academic communities. I've had very supportive listeners. And, and if you don't like it, then you don't read it or don't listen to it, right? Yeah, it's not yeah. for everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm one of those people who I did not discover or realize that I loved horror until probably I turned 30. And so like, I am new to horror. And I know you have suggested so many amazing books to me. And I'm very grateful to you for that, for like, really like bringing me into this world. What do you love most? What is it that draws you to horror? Uh, I get I get asked that a lot, because the implication and use is not your implication. So okay, not, okay. This is not what you're saying. But oftentimes you get asked that because the implication is, you know, what trauma did you suffer as a child or what could possibly be wrong with you that you would want to to be interested in this stuff? Yeah. And so, I mean, I've got two answers. And the one which I've, I've talked about in, in other interviews is that when I was 11, my parents divorced 
And my mom is a huge fan of gothic fiction and like Rebecca and old universal horror films. And around that time, that would have been 1981, 82, there in my hometown of Florence, South Carolina, every Friday night was a horror double feature with like a guy dressed up in a Dracula suit doing an intro. And they would do an, you know, an episode of Kolchak's The Night Stalker with Darren McGavin and then a, a, a Boris Karloff film or, or whatever. And during the year between my dad leaving and my mom marrying my stepdad my siblings are much younger so i got to sit up late on friday nights with my mom and watch these double features and it was like it was a cool thing it felt like an adult thing and it was a comfort thing it was something i did with her and that's probably where it began and then right after that uh when i was like 12 i read the novel dracula way too early to do it but i did it that's like really, I didn't read that until college, I think. Like that's, that's a... probably when you should be. <laughs> but I, I wasn't monitored in what I read. So I checked it out of the local library. And then I was lucky enough to come of age when Stephen King was just hitting his stride. And so I was reading Christine and Cujo and, you know, it when, when they came out. And it was a good time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, and it sounds like that good time is coming back again. You talked about a horror resurgence. It's always been there, but yeah, we're, we've got great stuff going on. We have Jordan Peele, and we have Ari Aster, and, and we have Paul Tremblay, and Tananarive Do, and Stephen Graham Jones, and just, you know, we have some amazing writers out there doing amazing work. I'm, I'm teaching a contemporary horror fiction and film class in the fall, and, and I'm so, like, it's the, I, the idea of having to narrow it down to, like, the six novels I'm going to do in the, five, the seven films or whatever is just excruciating oh my gosh how would you even do you just pick personal favorites or do you, do you tend to pick like what's best discussion wise i'm a little bit of both and i'm theming it so so we'll like you know we're going to talk about how race and colonialism is is represented so there's films that suggest themselves to that more than other things yeah wow <laughs> oh what i what i wouldn't give to sit in on that class i bet that's going to be amazing <laughs> i hope so Fingers crossed. If there's people out there who are a little anxious about horror, and I'm speaking here as a former version of myself who was like, everything is just like torture and gross and scary. Like, where would you recommend people get started if they're interested in dipping in their toe? Well, one of the things that I love about this genre is that it is incredibly varied. And so the same way that you, if you, you can say I write science fiction, but does that mean you write hard science fiction where you're actually describing how the light the hyperdrives work or does it mean you write star wars which is basically a space fantasy or you know there's all kinds of levels so i don't tend to write really gross over the top stuff although lately i've dipped my foot into it this is a much more horror heavy season of palimpsest I just played the new episode, which I've just mixed to my wife last night over dinner, and she had to quit eating. Well, oh, she's no. like, I'm, she's like, I'm just going to stop eating till this is over. <laughs> so, so sometimes it happens, but you know, you can have like, you know, I, I think I mentioned the novel Rebecca. I mean, that that's a horror story, and that's a great way to begin dipping your toes in. Mm. I think there's psychological horror, and there's thrillers, and there's there's gentle, cozy ghost stories. You don't have to go slasher. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Boy, now that you mention it, I feel like even I re I read Rebecca when I was in high school, and I just fell in love with it. And right, right, yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful yeah, horror. It, there's beautiful horror out there. A lot of beautiful horror. Out there. Oh man, gosh, I have so many questions for you. I think, gosh, where I'd like to go is, can you tell us a little bit about your own writing life, your own creative life, and maybe even secondarily, if 
that ever clashes or if you have to prioritize between that and, and the work that you do? I'm lucky in that. I mean, the short answer is yes, obviously clashes. I mean, life intrudes and because I am like probably most writers, I would think, I mean, I know we all do it differently, but, but it's not like, Oh, I've got 30 minutes free. I can write. I've got to have the, you know, I've got to have a half hour to clear my head and mm-hmm. to make sure I'm caught up on emails and, and reread, you know, where, what was actually happening in the story? What oh, am I yeah. doing now? <laughs> and then once I'm in the zone, I can write. And so, you know, you need a few hours anyway. I mean, one of the advantages of being an academic is that I have four months off every year. Mm. And so a lot of my, I, and I write during the year too, but a lot of my writing is, is done during the summers when I've got free time. So I don't consider myself off in the summers. I, I just switch what, what I do when I start my day. During the school year, it's just uh, scheduling time in. I mean, I, for me, it's important to to not say, well, when I find time, I'll get this done. Mm-hmm. It's saying, I know that on a, at, I don't have classes at 11 o'clock on Wednesdays. And so from 11 to, to 1 on Wednesdays, I'm going to shut the world out. And that's what I'm going to write. And deadlines help. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about, I love a lot about audio drama, but once we start and we have promised an episode every two weeks, it's got to be ready. And so that, that's helpful to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The having accountability. Pl- yeah. Yeah. Having a play commit, you know, knowing that, that uh, it didn't work, but when I was writing Bloodbath, you know, that, that we were, the, the theater company I worked with asked, you know, I didn't write it and submit it. They asked me to write it and, and like, you know, we're opening in October. Well, I'd, I'd better have a script by September, you know? <laughs> so that's a, mo- that's a motivator. It's a good motivator. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you ever find, like, speaking of motivation, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. You know, when you lose your motivation, do you just stop writing for a while? Do you push through it somehow? Or do you, do, do you not lose your motivation? I jump projects. Mm. I mean, you asked earlier about the different genres. Um, that's one of the things I like about it is if I've got... I've got more than one project operative. And I usually, I try not to have more than one project urgent. Like I try not to have like deadlines overlapping. But if I'm stuck on a particular story, if I have something else to jump, particularly if it's in a different format, like if I'm stuck on a piece of fiction and I can jump to a play, it's still utilizing the same kind of like narrative muscles, but it just distracts me enough that I can often then when I come back, I find out that I've, I've discovered the, you know, work through the block or whatever. But I love, I love it. I mean, I love writing. So the, the process of just sitting down and trying to figure out words is, I always have motivation for that. I just don't always know what the words ought to be. Mm, mm. <laughs> Gosh. And I, I love speaking with writers like you who are just so very, you just seem so calm and so measured and so put together. And is, is there anything that you, that you struggle with or that, that you've been wrestling with? Well, I, I'm glad you perceive me that way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I struggle, I struggle with the same things that we all struggle with, right? It's not good enough. This, this draft Mm -hmm. is, this draft is crap. I can't believe that, you know, it doesn't matter how, if I've done anything that's been successful or what people have said about previous things, the new thing, I'm like, oh, well, geez, clearly I don't know how to do this. Why am I even here? You know, I compare myself unfairly to other writers, you know, trying to keep that in check, but the impulse is there. Mm. You know, you get a hundred excellent reviews on your show and then one person 
just comes in to say, you know, this, well, this is amateurish and crap and the sound design's horrible. And I'm, and that's the guy I remember, right. I can quote those reviews to you. Mm-hmm. So I do, yeah, I do all that stuff. Um, but I don't know. We keep doing it. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a big support network that like continues to cheer you on? I have a good support network. My wife is amazing. She's always been a big cheerleader for my writing. My my kids are supportive and often read the stuff I do. And my son is a collaborator. He's, he's the composer for Palimpsest. Well, you've met him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I have a big network. And I like, one of the things I like about playwriting and making audio dramas is that I am not in isolation like you are. Like I enjoy novels. I enjoy writing fiction. But it's, it can be a very lonely kind of, it's just me and the page. And I love, in theater in particular, the collaborative effort of it, that, that this is this script is just the beginning, and now we're going to work together to pull it, to talk about interpretation and, and set design and all that stuff. So, Absolutely. Yeah, my partner in Palimpsest is, is a tremendous person to work with, the actor that I work with, and uh, we're, we do a lot of, I do the writing, but we do a lot of character development together. So we get together and I'm like, well, this is what I'm thinking. And, and, and Haley says, well, here, here's what I think her background is, or, or why would she say this? Let's, let's mm-hmm. figure out why she would say this. And so I feel like that's a nice kind of direct writing support that you get people giving you feedback. I love that. I love yeah. that. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier and that this has really stuck with me. We've been, we've been kind of talking a little bit today about, you know, working within these different genres and you talked a little bit about using different muscles for different genres. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I, um, well, I mean, on a simple level, audio drama is all sound. Right. So it's primarily, I mean, there, there are, depending on how big a scale you do it on, and we do it on a fairly modest scale as far as story. We are, we're primarily a single voiced audio drama. Uh, and, and occasionally we'll bring in other, other actors, but we're not like wooden overcoats, right? We're not, we don't have like 15 people in, in a studio recording at once and directing. That's pretty big. So we're mainly dialogue. We're mainly spoken word. And theater is, the writing of theater is largely dialogue. Um, you're the director and the set designers are going to do the spectacle of it, but you're writing dialogue. So, and that's one of my strengths. So another reason I play to, I write a lot of theater is because I know I'm a good dialogue writer. Mm. But the other thing is fiction versus performance-based writing. Fiction can be interior in a way that you can't on the stage. So there's a lot of, you can do an internal monologue in a way that you can't Mm. in a stage play. You can have you can have an entire piece of fiction with no dialogue at all, right? It's all in somebody's head. Mrs. Dalloway, it's all in somebody's head. Whereas it's very hard to do interiority in theater unless you want to be, you know, Eugene O'Neill and step out and do a soliloquy, a strange interlude. But but if you're just doing realistic theater, people are you have to show what's happening in a in a way that you can get away with fudging in fiction, and so learning how that's one of the ways I decide like which story is going to work best in what format. Is this something that takes place largely in a protagonist's head where there's a lot of internal reactions and things? Well, that's probably not going to translate to the stage as well. So that's sort that sort of answer the question. That's kind of what, how I think about it. It does. Yeah. And it, it goes into, you know, Oh, how do you know which story is going to be, you know, presented in which medium? I'm also curious 
I keep going back to your email here and you you say that you think about story in different ways for different genres and formats. And is, is that kind of what you meant there is just how the story is told or are there other considerations as well? Yes, sort of how the story is told. It, it also has to do with the shape and depth of the story. I mean, mm. you, you also can't, you've got limitations on the stage of, you know, unless you want, you're not going to find an audience who's going to want to sit for four hours and watch something, right? So, so you know how the beats work and you know the structure. One of the things that I learned when I started audio, actually, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as a yeah. writer who pivoted to audio drama. I learned so much about pacing when I started Palimpsest because we had, you know, we decided early on it's a single story each season. There's 10 episodes per season. Each episode is about 20 minutes, so about 2,500 words. And that means... I have to hit very particular rhythms mm. and I've, I've got a certain themes I want to do. I've got an overarching story, but each episode has to have a little mini story in it, or at least a, a suggestion of a climax that makes people want to come to the next episode, but it's got to move the big story forward mm. and learning how to hit that pacing. Mm. I think really helped my fiction writing because I learned a lot about the structure of rhythm and beats within, within a narrative. So I like the way I like that too. I like the way different genres inform the other genres. What, what you can s- steal from other things. I love that. Oh, I love yeah. that. Okay, so I'm curious. I want to go back to you know you're talking about learning about writing with pacing and beats and developing tension and all of that with palimpsest. Is that something where you started writing it, kind of stood back and said, "Wait, we need some beats in here," or was it planned out ahead of time, or did you just feel your way through it? Season one was planned a little more in that way than the other seasons were. I feel like we were better prepared in later seasons in terms of like, I had learned how to make a good audio drama. Like I mm. learned like what, you know, what kind of character do we want here and how's this going to work? What, what I did for Palant for season one was I had some ideas about how ghost stories worked, largely drawn from the opening chapters of an amazing novel by Caitlin Kiernan called The Drowning Girl. <gasps> Wait, I read that because you recommended I, I it to me. I probably told you to read it. Okay. Yeah. So, I was like, so, why have I read that? Okay. Right. So early on in the drown and, and the, the the plot of Drowning Girl has nothing to do with Palimpsest, but early on in that there's this little meditation where the character goes off on on ghost stories as memes, ghost stories as replicated ideas through culture and how memories are replicated. And and so I had some themes that I wanted to work with, and they're the themes that I work with in almost all of my writing. And so I knew. I knew that I that it was a, a woman who had lost someone close to her. And it was very quickly that we got to sister for that. And I knew that she was so she was haunted by her own personal loss mm. and that she was moved in going into a space that was literally haunted by something else. And so I was using that as a metaphor, which is not original at all. And so we actually wrote out every episode. There were three things that we wanted to do. We wanted to do work with the actual haunting. We wanted to work with Annalise's memories of Claire. And we wanted to work with some kind of philosophical ideas about the idea of haunting or the idea of memory and how it functioned. Mm -hmm. And so that was my goal. Every 2,500 word episode, I had to hit at least briefly on all three of those themes while moving my plot forward. And, and yeah, it seems like a tall order, but I like that kind of structure. Like when I write poetry, I like to write in form like, because I like rules. Yeah. And you mentioned limitations before, too. I can. I mean, I'm happy to break them if I need to. But just, you know, that way you're not if you get lost, you asked also about like getting blocked or getting losing motivation. Uh, that was another thing I could go back to. I'm not really sure what to go 
what to do here. Well, let me go back to my list. Have I actually talked about identity and memory mm. yet? Well, let's talk. Let's how can how does that function in this scene? And so it allowed me to have some parameters that I could take or leave, but at least I, I was never lost at sea completely. That's so, so yeah. interesting. So how do you feel about, you know, you talked a little bit about the limitations and the, the, the structures within stage plays, within audio dramas, jumping into a novel, what is that going to be like? I feel like that's more of a formless void or are you sort of imposing your own sort of restrictions, limitations? You just, you just impose your own restrictions and limitations. This will be published one short novel with a small press. I've written four, I'm sorry, five, I've written five. That, that didn't get published, that my agent valiantly tried to publish and oh. did not happen, which is the way it works. I mean, that's what everybody has. Their drawer is full of, of unpublished novels. And what that means is I, even though nobody wanted those, I got better as I was doing and I learned something from each one of those. So this, mm. the novel I'm planning on writing is something I've had notes on going back almost 10 years. Oh and my I gosh. didn't think I was really good enough to write it when I first started coming up with it. So I've just, every once mm. in a while, add some notes or think sketch something out or whatever and and i think i'm ready to do it and it's like a in typical me fashion i mean it's like a it's like a triple narrative in three different time periods that all <laughs> intersect and it is so we'll see so not not tricky or difficult not at all, tricky or no. difficult at all so let, we'll see if, <laughs> if i if i yeah, I mean, talk to me in November and I'll tell you whether or not this was a good idea. But but I've got it. I've worked on it and thought about it long enough that there is a sort of a loose structure. Like I kind of understand the outline of it and I know the plot and, and I just need to see if I can make it do what I want it to do. Yeah. It's a rock and roll ghost story about a band from the 70s. And, and uh, so we'll see. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I, I want to ask. I want to ask a couple things about this. You mentioned you kind of have an outline in your head. Do you formalize that outline? Do you put it on paper? How formal is that outline? Do you consider yourself a plotter or a seat of your pantser? I'm an in-between. I don't, I'm scared to be a complete pantser. Unless I'm doing it like a short story, sometimes I'll just sit down and see what happens. But a big project, that feels scary. So I usually have a loose structure. I usually have the base idea. And sometimes I'll know the ending. Mm. And then I usually have a couple of scenes, often an early scene and then often a scene like three quarters of the way through where like I can see this clearly. I know what happens there. I don't know how we got there. I don't know what happens between these scenes. And so that part is sort of I'm pantsing it as I get in there. And what I hope happens, all writing comes from character for me. So once I know the characters really well, you get in, you probably, I'm sure you've, you've felt this with X and uh, Girl in Space, once you know the characters really well, they almost take on a life of their own. Mm. Like you'll, you'll be writing and, and, and you'll, I'll just know, well, this is what she says to this because I know who she is and this is how she reacts to this kind of a situation. And so sometimes plot, I mean, I'm writing it. I'm always in control. I'm not being mystical or woo-woo about it, but, but it feels like I'm just watching it happen and recording it as it goes. Mm. Um, but I have to really know my character before that starts to roll. So how do you develop your characters going into something like this? Do you do worksheets? Do you put together Pinterest boards? What do you do? I do not. Well, I started doing Pinterest boards. I've never did Pinterest boards before because there wasn't Pinterest when I was first starting to do this. <laughs> we do Pinterest boards for Palimpsest. And I think Haley started that, but but it's really 
effective. So for Palimpsest, I we do Pinterest boards, we do Spotify playlists, Ooh. and we do a lot of just frantic texts back and forth. We're like, oh, last night at midnight, this occurred to me. And, and don't you think this is what happened to her? And this is why she acts this way? And I'd be like, holy <laughs> yeah, of course. So we do a lot of that. I do a lot of writing longhand. Mm. So I've got this little, your listeners can't hear it, but I've got this little notebook here. And it's basically, I mean, it's one of the thick moleskin. So it's not like the little flat, flexible ones, it's a hardback. And if you could see what it says in it, it, it's all little disconnected paragraphs of just ideas as they come to me. I'm going to hold up the exact same thing. Oh, yeah. Except mine has stickers in it. Yeah. But like for I have a moleskin here, which is disconnected. Right. Like it's just, yeah. And so for this novel that I've been, you know, taking notes on for so long, I've got a notebook. It's just one of the smaller ones upstairs on my other desk in my writing room. And over several years, I've just been writing as ideas about character comes to me, as, mm-hmm. as I get thoughts about how things are connected and how people have done things in the plot, they're all written in there. They're not in any kind of order. It's not going to be fun to, <laughs> <laughs> to organize. But when I sit down and create my Scrivener document, you know, I'll, I'll make notes on the side and I'll organize it all. I'm very curious. I want to go back. I talk in circles. So I'm going to, I'm going to, no, I want to go back. <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, 10 years ago, you weren't ready to write this yet. And I have so many ideas that I put aside and I say, I'm not ready to write this yet. I don't know enough or I don't feel like it's the right time. How did you know that this was the right time to start this project? I think a lot of the things that I've been saying about structure and pacing, I've learned from writing. For a while, I was just going to be a novelist, right? When I was 10, I read The Lord of the Rings and I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write The Lord of the Rings. And I did. When I was 13, I wrote a script for The Fellowship of the Ring, like a 50-page script on my little electric typewriter. That's awesome. Long before Peter Jackson did it. <laughs> my script wasn't quite as good as his, but, but, I, <laughs> but I did it page by page through The Lord of, through the Fellowship of the Ring, translating That's it into awesome. a, a script. So that was what I was going to do. And I sort of fell into, I was a theater major in college. And so I took a playwriting class then, and then later on decided when I was, um, my longest job I had teaching was in North Dakota at a, um, uh, a school in Bismarck. And I was kind of co-director of the theater program there. And I tried my hand at writing a play for them. And that was Grave Lullaby, which went on to, mm-hmm. to, to do pretty well. And I really loved it. Like I loved the whole process. So I started writing more theater and then I sort of, because of theater, fell into audio drama, like directly because of a play, started my audio drama. And I feel like I learned a lot of stuff that I wasn't learning just sitting on my own writing fiction. Mm -hmm. And so when I went back to the notes on this loose baggy monster of a novel that I'm wanting to write, I, for the first time, instead of saying, God, it's all these different you know, the band in the 70s and, and one of the members dies and then there's something that happens in the 80s with this, the daughter of that member and then there's a guy in the 2000s trying to write a book and he's haunted by the... It's like, I don't even know how to put that together. And when I went <laughs> back to it after doing all this other work in other genres, I just knew. I looked at it and I was like, oh, I see how this narrative is structured. I see how to put these parts together. And I even know a little bit about like the, the back and forth of which chapter does what. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, like, once I could see how the parts fit together, then I thought I could try to write it. So I still don't know if I'm good enough to write it. We'll, we'll find that out next year. Mm. But I'm not afraid to try it now. Good. And I was afraid to try it before. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
not being afraid to try it. Those fears are very, 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 very real. They're very real. Very real. And it's interesting. Sorry, I was just like, that That was a very drawn out sentence because my mind immediately went to, oh, the horror writer being afraid of the word <laughs> and the project. I was like, this is so meta. Right. So, of course, that's where my brain was sailing sure. off to before I reined it back in. But th no, thank you for sharing that. Knowing when you're ready to tackle something, I appreciate you saying that, you know, maybe I'm not ready. Maybe it won't be, quote unquote, good enough, whatever yeah. enough means, whatever good means. Right. But it's time. It's time. And it might not. One of the things that I learned through not selling the other novels, because that process is is a lot of it's not just bleak. Mm. It's intense hopefulness followed by bleakness mm. <laughs> right so, so it's your agent emailing you and saying oh I, I, you know these five editors at these big houses asked to read they want the full we're going to send them the full oh awesome so we're going to wait six weeks for them all to tell me no uh. or or three years for them to never answer you at all and oh. so you know it's it would be one thing if it was just like oh i'm not nobody wants my books it's like everybody wants your books no 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 nobody wants your books so but one of the positives that comes out of that is I feel much more confident in writing something without like an end goal in mind. Mm. Like, well, it's not worth doing if it's not going to get published or it's not worth doing if somebody's not going to read it. It was totally worth doing those books. I learned a lot from those books and I, I love some of those characters still, even though I'm the only person who will ever know them. And so I'm not, I don't feel as much pressure going into this novel mm. that it may or may not work. And it may, people may not want it once I'm done with it, even if I like it. And that'll be okay. I've got other venues for people to look at the things that I write. That's such a good way of looking at that. I can see so many writers and hopeful writers who kind of pin their hopes, the hopes get dashed, and then they're kind of done. Yeah. What kept you going? Was it just love of the craft? Love of the craft. And I just, I like it. I, I enjoy doing it. And you know, small successes. Mm. I didn't sell the novels, but I published short fiction and I published poetry and, and my animated horror films won awards at film festivals. And, you know, I had plays. Plays are great because <laughs> if they're good, people, you know, one of the things that I wish we could have as novelists, people come to your play, watch it performed and then applaud immediately. Mm. You know, they're like, I just heard that and I'm going to tell you right now that I like it. And I dig that, man. I tell you, you can get addicted to that. Oh, I love that. And then of course, they, yeah. also, they also tell you immediately if they don't like it. I was about to say, you can't hear a person not clapping, so. No, but they'll find you to tell you in person. Oh. But, so it wasn't just, you know, it's a career and you're in it for the long haul. And it's a craft and you're learning the craft. And some of the, you know, sometimes you get rejections that are very helpful. We like the story, but we this particular thing didn't work. And like one of my novels in particular, uh, there was multiple editors said things about the dialogue feeling too young or it was a young adult novel mm. but they felt it was too young for the audience mm. and or that the themes because it was a horror novel uh, were too advanced for the like there was a disjoint between the characters and the plot i had put them in and that was valid and so looking back i was like yeah you're absolutely right i get that and so i learned from that and then sometimes you get like you know one editor says the prose is beautiful, but we don't like the plot. And another editor says, great plot, but you know, your prose could use some work. And you're like, well, you guys don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I like that it comes down to that. Right, right. So you got to you gotta learn how to take that. Mm -hmm. But it's not just all horrible, right? There, there's also successful things happening too. I like that. 
I love your perspective on this. I love your perspective that you're not just producing content. You're not just churning things out that can then be judged as good or bad. What you're working on is yourself as an artist. You're working on your craft. You are a craftsman and that takes time. And yeah. Yeah. And and we all feel that. I mean, I'm sure you felt that. You look back at stuff that you wrote early on and you just, you're like, oh my God, did I, I thought that was okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or you don't look back on your old or stuff you because you know it's not good. Because you're scared of it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, I'm sounding all I'm speaking with equanimity here on the podcast, but yeah, that doesn't mean that you're not devastated when you get the bad reviews or when people don't want it or, or, you know, that I I spent two years on this book and now we're 18 months in and your agent says, you know, we're going to pull it. Nobody, you know, this isn't going to go. And so you put the file in a folder and walk away Mm -hmm. and that's no fun either. So it doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't suck because it sucks, (laughs) but it's a separate thing from the writing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still learning, I think, to separate those. I'm still, I think, learning and understanding what it means to to create and to have people uh, digest what you create. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. And I think it's a, it's a, or at least for me, it's been a, it's been a slow process and realizing that your work is not for everyone. Right. Yeah, as well. But also realizing that you have an audience when you didn't expect you would have one. For me, anyway, I mean, the audio drama world, the reach is so immediate and far in ways that you don't like. I'm making my little story, and you know, I did a play in 2017 about a punk rock band, and uh, and Haley Hininger was in that play, that's how I met her. Oh, I didn't know and, that, yeah. And, and so, after um, after that play was done, we had we had kind of connected during the performance, and I uh I asked her if she'd ever been interested in doing an audio drama because I was thinking about it because I, I was listening to Alice Isn't Dead. Oh. And, I was, and I was like, that's one actor and one writer. And I bet I could do that. And I just loved it. Um, and her response was, yes, I've just been listening to Alice Isn't Dead and I was wanting to do something. So it was like, oh, that's perfect. We should do this. So we started it. And so it was just this little like two friends in my basement. Let's see what we can do. And then then you start getting, you know, emails from people. And we got one from someone in Venezuela who was like, I just want you to know how much I love your podcast. And we got fan art from Russia and we got, and it's just a weird feeling that you, you know, you put it out and it goes out mm. <laughs> and mm. people, and there are people out there listening to it who, who's not just not my mom. Right. It's not, it's not like my friends reading it. There's like uh, strangers who are like, you know, buying our t-shirts and, and that feels um, I, I, it's awesome. Like I'm not, I'm not knocking it at all, but, it, but it's hard to wrap your head around sometimes. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, that I'm just sitting here in my basement recording with, I mean, the mic you're looking at is the mic that we use and that it just goes out and to the whole world. <laughs> Which is beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, it is beautiful. It's that distribution, that immediate. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. I got a little addicted to it maybe. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I know. I don't yeah. know if I could go to, you know, writing a novel where, yeah, you wait and you wait for people to read it. And yeah, absolutely. And the novel will, uh, you know, it's the other stuff continues. So mm-hmm. that's doing both things allows me to have my cake and eat it too, I guess, because it's not like I'll quit podcasting 
when I write the novel. Please don't. Yeah, you're, you're no, too I good. Won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we're in it for the long haul, and we're doing. So, you know, we, we're doing a live show in October or in August, and have a new live. It's going to be a choose your own adventure live show, I think, that we're going to do. Like, audience gets to vote at various points on what the character does, and we're both kind of excited about it. So there's there's all these different ways to overlap the media and the genres too. Oh, that's going to be amazing! That's going to be so cool. Yeah, we're live streaming it. I think I'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of wrapping things up, I want to be sensitive of your time, but I also want to ask for I'm not I'm not sure if I want to ask the favorite your favorite piece of writing advice that you've received or the favorite piece of writing advice you like to give, or if they're the same thing. Oh, you know, I teach writing as well. Like I'm, I'm a, I teach creative writing and I'm actually teaching an audio drama writing course <gasps> in, in uh, for teens this July. And I'm teaching a course right now called writing ghosts that I'm having a blast with. Oh my gosh. I don't have a pithy, like embroidered yeah. on a pillow piece of advice, but the thing that keeps me going is that for me, writing happens in revision. Mm. And so the biggest thing I see, because I work with a lot of beginning writers, like student writers, writers in their teens and early 20s, who are just like, and even some of the adult writers I work with are like, you know, I've always thought I should write and I've never done it. So I'm going to give it a shot. How do I do it? And then they expect me to tell them how. So, (laughs) and one of the biggest obstacles I think to us as writers is that fear that, you know, Ira Glass talks about this, the, our, our taste is a barrier sometimes mm. by which he means that, that we're, you know, you read beautiful writers, you read the best and we are able to discern what's the best. We have good taste and we can tell what's good writing and what's bad writing, which means that we then expect that when we write, that we're going to be at the level of those people that we emulate. And that's an unfair expectation because those people have spent a long time developing their craft. And so the, the challenge is to write even when it's not as good as you want it to be to actually just get it on the page even though you know Anne Lamott's first draft it's gonna be that is its job and if it's on the page you can revise it you can revise for style you can fix the things that are wrong with it you can make it prettier you can throw characters out or whatever you can't do anything until it's on the page so you have to write and you have to be unafraid of it being a little crappy a lot crappy. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do about that fear? Do you just like embrace it? Like, do you just dive into the sea of fears or? Well, I mean, well, eventually you just get good. You get better at doing it for, for beginning writers, for younger writers. I usually in a writing course, not doing it with this. I'm teaching the writing ghost class is a grad course I'm teaching and I'm not doing it with these folks because most of them are older than me and and they're okay with that, just getting stuff down and making mistakes. But for mm-hmm. younger writers, I very often do free writing exercises at the beginning of every class mm-hmm. where they are required to write. You, the rule is you write, there's no prompt. You write for five minutes without stopping. The only rule is you cannot lift your pen from the paper or your fingers from the keyboard. Mm-hmm. And I don't grade it. I don't take it up. I don't look at it. You don't have to do anything with it. It doesn't have to even make sense. Mm-hmm. But to begin to break down that barrier, that police in our head that stops us from doing it, to get used to just vomiting the words on the page so that you can clean it up later. And I think sometimes you just have to do it, get criticized for it or have to throw it away or do just, just learn that like, that's not the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. Now you've survived that and you're, you're okay. And 
you're going to go on and be all right. You're going to be okay. Yeah. And that's beautiful to remember. And it'll probably get better. It will get better. If yeah. You it, it'll get better. Yeah. I love that you said you had nothing pithy to say. And then immediately you're like, writing happens in revision. And I'm like, that's so pithy. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. Well, I, that was lucky. <laughs> Cross-stitch that and put it up yeah. on my wall. Like, that's so but good. It, but it does. That, that's where the pretty stuff happens. You know? mm. That's where the beautiful prose I don't know anybody that just sits down and perfectly constructed sentences pours from their pen. Every writer I know who I respect talks about drafts and throwing things out and, and agonizing over words and structures and should I use an independent clause here? And you know, all of that has to happen, but it can't happen in the first draft. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for yeah. saying that. I think even I personally needed to hear that right now. So just... Thank you. Well, and I need it, you know, in I will say that in practice, I, you know, I'm bad at that. So mm-hmm. I need to remind myself of it. I'm really bad at like frantically doing a first draft of an episode before we're about to record it when I know I should be, I know I'm going to have to revise it in the recording session because I didn't take the time to do it here. So <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. does that ring? It probably rings. All the bells, all the bells rings are the ringing. Bells somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, and there's such good writing happening in the audio drama world too. And and I think probably that those people would say the same thing. You know, you craft it, you think about it. Yeah, you do. You're wonderful. This has been oh, thank you. So, so absolutely you. amazing. I want to make sure that people know where to go to find your work and to find you and to do all the things to join your live show. Where do they go to find you? The best place to go is well, the the clearinghouse is two places. The website for the for Palimpsest is thepalimpsestpodcast.com. And Palimpsest, for all the trouble people have saying it and writing it down, it literally is exactly as it sounds and pronounced exactly as it's spelled, P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-S-T, Palimpsest. So thepalimpsestpodcast.com. My website is jamesonridenourwriter.com and J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N ridenour.com, or writer jamesonridenourwriter.com. Perfect. Um, I will have links to all of those in the show yeah. notes. So if you're driving in your car right now and you're like frantically trying to write this down, don't worry. It yeah, will be clickable. The show notes. We'll make it easy. And also for social media, I mean, Twitter is where we, we live. And Palant says and me, Twitter is, is my main social media. That's the place to follow us. Wonderful. So I'll make sure I'll have your, your Twitter handles in there as well. And okay. then just real quick, the live show. The live show is going to be in, if you want to come to it in person, it's going to be at the White Horse in Black Mountain, North Carolina, which is my favorite music venue. And it's right down the road from my house on whatever that first Saturday, the Saturday of Labor Day weekend. What is it? Mm. Is this uh, the 4th, maybe? September 4th at 8 o'clock. And it'll be, you know, it's going to be a, a two-hour show. We'll be on stage. We're probably going to be giving away we're going to be doing a, a, a raffle. It's the 4th. September okay. 4th. We are going to be around that time, if things keep steady, hitting half a million listens. Oh, nice. Which I'm, which I'm pretty excited about. So we're probably going to be doing, this is the first time I've said this in public, we're probably going to be doing a raffle giveaway of some Palimpsest merch, some handwritten postcards from Josie, our season three protagonist, oh. and some other kind of surprise things that we were going to do. And those will be announced at that live show as well. And it's just going to be an amazing show. It's so. just going to be a fun show. Yeah, yeah. Choose your own adventure haunted house story. Fantastic. Oh, I love this. Fantastic. So I'll have information about that in the show notes for today's episode as well. Yep. 
Jamie, you are just, you're one of my favorite people to talk to. I'm so happy that oh, you were on the you. show today. This is just yeah, such a delight. Me too. It's so good to see you again. I can't wait to be in the same place eventually again. But, I know. But it's nice to do it virtually anyway. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah. it, is it is exactly just as nice, except it would be nicer if we were in person. Exactly. But. So cool. Well, thank you again so much. I'm going to let you get back to your very busy schedule. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon.